Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Trust that each one of you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Uh, my family and I were able to travel to Ohio to visit some, some family down there, and we had a great time seeing them, and it's always good coming back as well. Uh, we, we consider West Michigan to be our home and are thankful to be here and to gather with you each weekend to study the scriptures and have the Lord teach us through uh, his word. And so I, I want to uh, invite you to stand with me as we read from the text this morning. Our text is going to be Genesis 32. Genesis 32. Uh, It may seem like a weird place to be in in the beginning of a Christmas season on December 1 with a little bit of snow outside. You're opening the book to Genesis? Yes, we are. Uh, This week and next week, we're going to be looking at part of the story of Jacob and what it means to be um, called as the people of God and what it means that God meets us in places in our lives. Uh, But this week, we're going to look at Genesis 32 and the narrative uh, that exists there. And so Genesis 32 says this, Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So they called, or he called that place Machanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, cattle, and camels. He thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I've crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two camps. Please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper. I will make your offspring like the land of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and he took part of what had been brought brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Then tell him, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau. And look, he is behind us. He also told the second one, the third, and everyone who was walking behind the animals, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You are also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. 
So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female slaves, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of the Javik. He took them and sent them across the stream along with his possessions. Verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, and I have been delivered. The sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why to this day the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket, because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Let's pray together. Our Father and our King, we open up to this story, this, this rich story from the first book of the Scripture. And God, we ask that you would teach us. We thank you, God, that you are a promise-keeping God. We thank you that you are a God who is with his people. Even today, Lord, we celebrate the baby sent so many years ago, Emmanuel, God with us, who lives and dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, who gives us life, who gives us purpose and meaning. And Lord, we thank you. Help us to understand the story of Jacob better so that we might understand our story and live increasingly to your honor and your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. And together we say, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for joining me in that long reading. I appreciate you standing for the scripture and the word of God in honor of the king. Um, This morning, we're going to talk about names. All right, we're going to talk about names. We encountered a couple of names in this passage, but names are incredibly important in the Bible. And particularly, we're going to talk about what does it mean that God changes our name? What does it mean that God changes our name? Um, I have three kids. I have Ephraim, Ephraim, if you say it in Hebrew. I have Maya, and I have Asaph, or Asaph. Um, Ephraim means fruitful, all right? It comes from a Hebrew word that means fruit. Para means fruit in Hebrew, uh, henceforth Ephraim, a very biblical name. One of the names of Joseph's sons in Genesis means fruitful. Maya is a name that means close to God. You can hear the, the word God in her name. Yah is the first part of the divine name, Maya. Um, my last child, I had to think there for a moment, just kidding. Um, Asaph comes from a word that means to gather, Okay, and the most notable Asaph in the Bible, the only one I can think of, is the hymn writer in the book of Psalms. He's one who gathers people for worship. Names have important meaning in the text. It's, it's kind of interesting. We often say, particularly about Ephraim, and uh, he, his name is Ephraim. It means fruitful, and one of his favorite things in all the world is fruit. Like, he, he loves it. Um, and one of the things that we find in Genesis is a lot of the names are there because they're their names, but they're named for a reason. For example, Jacob is named Jacob because when he comes out um, 
on his birth, he's the second of two twins, um, hence the second of two twins, yeah. Um, he comes out and he's grasping at the heel of his brother. The word Jacob comes from a word that means heel grabber or grasper. And one of the things, if you start back several chapters before where we just read, and you read up into where we're at now, one of the things you'll recognize about Jacob is that Jacob is, is very much true to his name. He's very true to his name. As he comes out of the womb, grasping at his brother, you will find him grasping after his brother throughout their life. You'll find him struggling with what does it mean to have a blessing? What does it mean to have provision? What does it mean that he gets what he wants? All right? Jacob is the kind of character who is very well-rounded in, in obtaining what he wants. And, and, and this is kind of partly affected in him by the family he comes from. Sometimes we have this idea that because someone is in the Bible, they were perfect. <laughs> There's only one perfect person to ever walk the face of this earth, and that's the Messiah, Jesus. If you go back and you look at the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we've been studying this in, in the Sunday school class that I helped lead downstairs for quite some time. For those of you uh, who are in our class, some of this will be familiar to you. Um, but, but we've been studying this for quite some time, and one of the things that you quickly realize is that these patriarchs are far from perfect. And yet God is working in their life to, to both fulfill his promises to them, but also to help them grow in godliness. And so you see Abraham, who begins as Abram, and, and Abram actually, it, it's ironic, uh, his name means exalted father, all right? Abram means exalted father, which is interesting because he spends the first hundred years of his life without having a son. Imagine your name being exalted father in a society in which having children is very, very important and, you're, and you don't have a kid. Um, when God changes his name to Abraham, it means chief of a multitude. So at some point in his life, his, change, his name is changed to Abraham. He becomes chief of a multitude and he doesn't have a multitude. He even says... Um, he even says at one point, um, talk, talking about not having an heir to his estate, he's like, Lord, is Eliezer, my servant, going to become my heir? Because this man who is a father by his name and a chief of a multitude by his divine given name doesn't have any kids. And so we, we find this struggle of, of what it means to follow God, what it means to obey God in the lives of all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and most definitely Jacob. Jacob is a deceiver. He's a heel grabber. He is one who grasps. He's one who fights his brother to claim the birthright. Now, the birthright is the larger portion of the inheritance that the elder brother Esau traded for Stu. So you might recall in the biblical narrative, uh, one day Jacob is in the tents. He's cooking food. His brother comes in and his brother wants food right then and there. And Jacob says, I'll give you food if you give me your birthright. Now, the birthright and the blessing are, are tied really well. What would happen is you would have, within a family, you would have the inheritance go proportionally to the kids, but the firstborn would receive an extra inheritance, and that is the birthright. Because you are born first, you get the most, all right? That's just part of the way culture worked then. Um, and so you, you have this, though, where Esau trades away his birthright for a bowl of stew. Just a few chapters later, 
The text describes um, how Jacob deceives his aging and his blind father into thinking that he's his brother Esau. Um, his mom, who, whose favorite son was Jacob, um, his dad's favorite son was Esau, they, which is kind of a challenge to begin with. Um, as, as they come together there, his mom hears that his dad is going to give the, the blessing to his eldest brother. She says, I want you to go and I want you to do this. And so they together deceive Isaac. Um, that doesn't end up terribly well. Um, Jacob is the, f- the first, among the first, to practice identity fe- theft in the ancient Near East. And, and he pretends to be someone other than he is because he wants to get ahead. And so Jacob's story is even that he goes to the flock, he has his mom prepare the food, he puts on the, the clothes of his brother, and he goes in, and he takes it to him, and his father says, how is it that you found this food so quickly? And he says, the Lord, your God, caused me to find the meat so quickly. Bold-faced lie. He went out to the flock, and he brought it in. His life is all about deception. Now, in order to preserve his brother, and I'm giving you all this background because you kind of need to understand where we're going um, by understanding where he's come from. So to preserve his life from Esau, who's planning to kill his brother, Jacob's mom says, hey, I want you to go over to my brother's house in Haran, some 500 plus miles away. There, go. And so she goes to his dad and he says, I don't like it that um, someone, one of my sons would marry a Canaanite woman from this area. I want to send our son over to my people so he can find a wife over there. So Isaac calls him, they send him. And on the way, Jacob has an encounter with God. He has an encounter with God. You might remember, it's the, uh, it's the one where he's sleeping and then there's like this stairway from heaven that comes down and then God makes some promises to him. And throughout the course of those promises, uh, Jacob wakes up from this encounter of hearing the words, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. He talks about how Jacob is going to have offspring like the dust of the, the, of the earth, um, and how he'll spread west and east and north and south. And he says this, I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Jacob wakes up, he recognizes that God was in this place and he says, how awesome is this place? And he encounters God there. Jacob makes a stone pillar the next morning to commemorate that and vows to God, God, if you'll be with me and you'll go with me as I go, you'll give me bread to eat and clothes to wear, and I come back to my father's house in peace, then God, you will be my God. And so one of the things we find out about Jacob is while the Lord has made covenant promises with his family, with Abraham, with Isaac, and now he's made them with Jacob, Jacob has not yet said, God, you will be my God. He hasn't had an encounter by which he says, God, I'm all in and I am yours. All right? That plays into the story quite significantly. And so he arrives in in Padanaram, Haran, that area. He meets his mother's family. He desires to marry his uncle's daughter, uh, which is totally kosher at this time. Uh, And he finds someone in the process who can out-trick, who can outline, who can out-manipulate him his father-in-law. <laughs> his father-in-law Laban is a messed up dude. Probably more so than even Jacob, Laban works and works and works to try to find what best brings him the most advantage. And so Jacob's there about 20 years. He serves the first 14 as part of a dowry for his two wives, Leah and Rachel. 
The remainder of that time, he is compensated in accordance with what he and Laban agreed with coming from the flock. And so as he's there, the Lord blesses him, the text says, and his flocks begin to increase and they begin to grow. And you come to the end of this and eventually the Lord comes to him and he says, I want you to get up and I want you to go. I want you to go back to the land of your father because there is something that I want to do for you there. I want to establish you in that land because that is my covenant promise with you. Now, Jacob, who has had a difficult history with his father-in-law, he, he gathers his wives together and he gets them. He says, should we go? They say, yes, we should. Do you see how he treats us? Because his father-in-law, his wife's father, um, did not look too kindly on him because especially their brothers thought that Jacob had absconded with all the wealth of their father. Really what happened is the Lord just blesses Jacob. Despite Laban's uh, trickery, thievery, all that kind of stuff, the Lord blesses Jacob. And so um, eventually Jacob returns to his homeland by the Lord's command. Now the Lord saw how, um, the Lord saw how Laban uh, trick Jacob and uh, calls him out of there because he's a covenant-keeping God. And here is where we come to chapter 32. All right, that's all your background for today. So Jacob is on his way back, and we come to chapter 32, verse 1, and we have Jacob going on his way, all right, kind of similar to before when he left his father's house. He's kind of going on his way. He's sleeping there one night. He has a dream. Here he's going on his way, and God's angels met him. All right, he, he recognizes that something, is diff something different is going on here, that the presence of God is in this place. So much so that he says, this is God's camp, and he calls the place Machanaim, which means two camps. He recognizes that God is here, and my camp is here, and what is going on? Um, Jacob's awareness of God with him, God's presence with him, reminds him also, I think, that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God, God has made covenant and God will provide and God will meet, but the humanness of Jacob is still very real. What you find throughout the next couple verses here is that Jacob um, sends messengers ahead of him, verse 3, to Esau. He doesn't want to just surprise Esau. He doesn't want to come in and, and kind of come in under the shadow. He comes in and he wants to let Esau know he's there because when he left 20-some years ago, he left some unfinished business. He, he left a degree of struggle. He left a degree of, of relationship that was fractured and broken, so broken that his brother wanted to kill him. And you don't just walk back into that and say, hey, brother, hey, nothing has changed. No big deal. Um, no, you don't do that. Despite the visible reminder of God's presence here, you find in these first verses, Jacob is trying to control the situation. He, he's trying to manipulate it to some extent. He, he's, he rightly sends messengers to Esau, but um, even though that he knows he must uh, meet his brother, when the men come back, they inform him with this. Um, I've sent this message to inform my Lord to seek your favor. The messengers come back, verse 6, we met your brother Esau, he's coming to you, and he has 400 men with him. Now, that's quite a welcoming party. 400 men is not someone, uh, not an amount, like if, if I was going to go visit a, a, a brother, my brother who I have, I don't actually have fractured relationship with my brother, but if I thought that he was going to kill me and he was bringing 400 people with me, I probably wouldn't feel too happy about that or too... Um, 
Good. <laughs> and, and notice what it says in verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid, and he's distressed. And because he's greatly afraid and, he and he's distressed, he begins to act. He divides the people with him into two camps. He's got flocks, cattle, and camels. And he thinks this. If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, maybe the, maybe the other one can escape. Jacob is making a, a secondary plan. Even though it is God who told him to go back to his father's land, um, he's thinking, how can I, how can I best uh, address the issue here with what I have in front of me? And so he separates the camps. Now, it's interesting. It says, greatly afraid and distressed. Greatly afraid and distressed. The, the word afraid here, it refers to fear. And it's um, the first mention of this word is actually in Genesis uh, chapter 3, when Adam is in the garden, and he hears the sound of the Lord. He hides because he's afraid, because he knew that they were naked, and he knew that they had sinned against God, All right? He's greatly afraid. That's the first time that word appears in the text. And to be distressed means literally to be cramped or to be constricted, all right? It, it, it is the feeling of overwhelm, and the only thing you can do when you come to this level of overwhelm and distress is go to God. This word is used a couple different places in the text, and oftentimes when this word is used, it's used to describe someone who, who is overwhelmed by their situation, and yet they turn to God because there's absolutely nowhere else to turn. So here you find Jacob in between two things. He's trying to figure out, how am I going to approach my brother? Because he knows he has sinned against his brother, right? He, he knows that he had deceived his brother. He, he knows he fled the country. He knows his brother is likely mad, but it's also been 20 years, and he doesn't know exactly what Esau's gonna be like, how Esau's going to receive him, or what their first words are going to be, and he's greatly afraid and distressed. So Jacob continues to manufacture his own plan by sending envoys of animals to his brother. Now Jacob has spent so much of his life seeking after acceptance and blessing. Think about it. There's four people in their family. Dad prefers one kid. Mom prefers the other. Dad's largely uninvolved in Jacob's life. Mom's very involved in Jacob's life. Brothers always at it. Jacob has fought so much of his life for acceptance. And central to the desire for acceptance is the struggle with identity. For Jacob, it's been years and years of years of forming his identity. His identity has been as a grasper and as one who's going to hold on and as one who's going to get what he can when he can. He's going to try and do what he can to outsmart his brother for the birthright. He's going to try and do what he can to disguise himself so that his father doesn't know that it's not Esau. So much of his life has been spent developing an identity that is one uh, that is based upon deceitfulness. Jacob has a fractured relationship with his brother, and he carries a significant responsibility for this. Yet there's these family dynamics and choices that also extend beyond him. Jacob has spent 20 plus years in unresolved conflict that must be resolved in order for him to dwell in the land. 
in order for him and his family to grow. And so what we find in verse 9 is this. Jacob prays. Jacob prays. It's the first time in the text that Jacob prays. You know, he'd had some conversations with God uh, back when, when God meets him with the stairway thing. But, but, but Jacob says this, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, and my God. He says, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. The Lord, the covenant-keeping God. You're, you in your Bible, you might have, in fact, you should have, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see the name of God written that way, that refers to the divine name, yod heh vav um, the covenant-keeping name. It, it's, it's the name by which God makes covenant with, with his people. The Lord, who said to me, go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. All right? As he begins his prayer, he, he acknowledges who God is, but he also acknowledges God's promises to him. The, the the one who said, I will cause you to prosper, all right? Jacob has very little to do with the blessing that God is going to bring. I mean, he has, he has, he has to be a part of it because it's about him, but the one who causes the prosper is God. But notice what he says in verse 10, and I think this is really important to understand the, the transformation that's going on in Jacob's life. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I am unworthy. This is a guy who has spent a lot of his years trying to determine his worth by what he can do. Trying to determine by his, his worth by who he can outfox. Trying to determine his worth by what his dad or what his mom or what his brother think of him. And he says, I am unworthy. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servants. Indeed, I've crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two camps. Please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. One of the best things we can always do, and one of the things we can learn from Jacob's prayer here is when we go to God, always recognize who God is, always recognize who we are in light of who God is, but then also never be afraid to say, God, I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. I'm, I'm cramped. I'm stuck in a place here, and I don't know what else to do, but God, you know what to do. In fact, God, your promises have been, you will give me this land, I will dwell, and God, there's nothing I have left other than your promises. Please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid of him, otherwise he'll come and attack me. Verse 12, you have said, I will cause you to prosper. I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. All right? As he goes back to what he wants God to do in his life, he goes back to what God has said God would do in his life. That's another great prayer principle for us. A lot of times we want to pray prayers that are really more self-focused than they are God-focused, that, that are more focused on our ends instead of God's ends, even as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our sufficient needs for today. Why would Jesus pray that? Well, what, or why would he teach them to pray that? Be, because he said, I will provi provide all you need in sufficiency for today. 
Go back to God's word and base our prayers upon God's word. And so Jacob then spends the night there. And he takes a part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. Now it's interesting. In, in verse, um, where is it? Um, he, he sends these envoys. It's 550 animals in total. And in verse 20, he says this. You are also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with a gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. I was looking at this a little more closely yesterday and I looked at the word appease because the word appease, at least to the way I understand uh, it in our context, is not always a positive one. It's, it's a way to get ahead again. The word appease um, is a word that describes... Um, you could translate it this way. It, it can be literally translated to cover someone's face with a gift. Uh, it also has instances. If you go and you look up the word, the way it's used in the Hebrew, and it, it, it's often translated to make amends or to make atonement for. Why does that matter? Well, Jacob is a been generally a deceiver all his life. How am I going to get ahead? How am I going to see the favor of Esau? But one of the things we get in this word, which is translated in the HCSB as appease, is we get someone who is coming to his brother to make amends. Why is he making amends? When he stole the birthright from his brother, and when he cheated his father out of the blessing, he wronged his brother. One of the biblical things, it's all throughout the Torah, it's even all throughout the whole Bible. One of the things that you do when you go and you seek forgiveness is you make amends. As far as it is possible with you, 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 you seek to make it right with someone. We see this notably in, in the um, story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament. Zacchaeus, the godfather of Jericho, cheats a whole bunch of people. He cheats a whole bunch of people out of their money. He has an encounter with Jesus, and what does he do at the end of that? He says, I'm going to give everything back. Not only am I going to give everything back, I'm going to give everything back more than what I took from them. When Jacob is coming to send this gift to his brother, he is sending, I believe, this gift in order to make amends or to begin to make atonement for the sin that he had committed against his brother. Because whether it's a brother, whether it's a husband or wife, whether it's a son or daughter, whether it's a coworker or whatever, when, when you come to make something right, you not only say the words, I am sorry. Those are very important words, by the way. Please forgive me. You also seek to make it right as much as it is possible with you, including making up for something that had been taken or stolen, including having a noticeable change of attitude that demonstrates that God is working in your life to really bring full forgiveness and repentance. I mean, you, we've experienced forgiveness, but, but we then learn to walk it out. All right, we, we, we learn to walk it out. Jacob is learning to walk out what it means to practice forgiveness with his brother. After he sends this, you find him at the ford of the Jabbok River, and it's nighttime. 
so it's hard to see. There's no, like, tons of lights around. Uh, he's at a water crossing, and they cross. He, he, he sends his family across. He, he takes them across, and you find Jacob in verse 24. It says, Jacob was left alone. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this happening at a river is that river crossings in the ancient world act a lot like gates. Jacob's entrance into the land signifies a monumental step in his journey. The monumental steps are often accompanied by struggle. They're accompanied by, ugh, this is hard. Jacob's alone. He sent everyone across the Jabbok River, and it's here where God comes to meet him again. God, God comes to meet him again. Him and only him. Now, it's interesting. Jacob's got this whole array of people with him, and yet what he does and what he experiences is something that is between him and God. There is certainly a part of community life in which we experience God together, in which we respond to God together, but there is something that each one of us must do on a regular basis with God to have a relationship with him. When Jacob is at the ford of the Jabbok River, God comes to meet him. And it's, it's funny because it's, it's just so like, it, it goes really quickly into it. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Like, it's just a weird sentence. He's left alone and all of a sudden he's going toe to toe with someone. He doesn't know who this person is, but he goes toe to toe with this person. Verse 25 says, when the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket. And as they wrestled, uh, the man dislocated his hip. Now, the man then says to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now it's interesting. Jacob has spent a lot of his life seeking blessing. He obtained the birthright from Esau. He has a blessing as Jacob's son. When he is blessed by his father Isaac, he is given every blessing that Isaac could possibly give. And yet Jacob is seeking another blessing. One of the things that Jacob experiences in wrestling with this man, Jacob's a strong guy. He goes toe to toe to toe, or at least so he thinks. Because then all of a sudden, in a moment's flash, uh, the man strikes Jacob's hip socket. There's this wrestle going on. Jacob thinks he has a chance. He really doesn't have a chance, but he's wrestling and wrestling and struggling and struggling. Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me because the most important blessing that he could obtain right now is from this man who is a lot stronger than he is. And the fact that he is struck in the hip socket and he's dislocated, it shows that there's divine action going on here. It shows divine action going on here to, to, to go that quickly, boom, boom, and, and he's down on the floor. But Jacob holds on. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. But notice what the man says. He says, what is your name? The man asked. What is your name? In order to bless someone, you'd have to know their identity. And blessing always occurs from the one who is greater to the one who is lesser. All right? That's why fathers in the ancient world bless their children. Because, not because they're more important, but because they are, they are the one who is responsible for their kids. They, they, they bless their kids, not their, not their kids blessing them. He says, what is your name? The man asks. And Jacob says a very important word. He says, Jacob. 
You, you might be like, well, of course he'd say Jacob. Who else would he say? No, no, no. He has just struggled. And we find out later that he's struggling face to face with God. He struggles and he struggles and he struggles. And the man asks his name. The divine man asks his name. And Jacob says, Jacob. I told you, names have meanings. Names have histories. Names have pasts. Jacob means to grasp. It means to grab. It means to hold on. What I want to suggest to you this morning is one of the things Jacob is saying when he responds to the man, what is your name? And he says, Jacob, he's come to an end. He's, he's, he's come to an end in a, to a realization of how he has worked his life day in and day out to acquire, to strive, to, to, to seek his own best interest at heart. And when he says Jacob, he's not just giving him his name, he's giving him his identity. Why do I say that? Because look at what happens next. The man replies to him, your name will no longer be Jacob. He said, it will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, what has he prevailed in? He, he didn't prevail in winning a fight because um, he's got a hip that he's going to limp on for the rest of his life. What did he prevail in? He, he, he prevailed in receiving the blessing from this individual. Now, I said Jacob. We talked about what that means. Israel, what does that mean? It's variously translated, but I think the best translation of this um, is this. It means God strives. God strives, okay? So we go from having a name of Jacob, which means to grasp and to hold on and to, Ugh, I, just wanna, I just wanna get what I can, to a name which means God strives. God strives. Why does that matter? The promises made to Jacob that he's experienced from the voice of, of the Lord. The promises made to Jacob is something that only God can do. As God sends him into this land, it's going to have to be God who goes before him. Not just to receive the promises of the land, but to begin within Jacob and continue within Jacob a transformation of his heart. Because to go from someone who is grasping and grabbing and always trying to do better than the next to someone who says, God, I need you to strive here because I am weak and I need you to be strong in my life. God, I, I, I don't want to live by cheating my brother out of anything. God, I want to make amends. It takes God striving in order to do that. It takes God's work in our lives. Many of us in our lives seek blessing and favor. Many of us in our lives struggle with who we are. We, we struggle with, oh, my name is Jeremy, but I'm really marked by this and this and this. I, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's fear, I don't know if it's anger, I don't know if it's personal ambition or loneliness or food or sordid or a checkered past, a broken home, a divorce, 
I don't know the things that bring identity to you today. But I do know that when we come into a relationship with God, God changes our name. Your name might still be Mike. Your name might still be Joe. Your name might still be Fred. Your name might still be Susie. I'm just making these up. Whatever your name is, that may still be your name. But God begins to change your identity. That's what he does in Jacob's life, and that's what he does in our lives. To change someone's name in the ancient world is to take responsibility for them. One of the things that we talk about in premarriage counseling is we talk about the naming pattern of the first couple chapters of Genesis. You know, Adam names all the animals. And by doing so, he takes responsibility for them. When God takes the name Abram and he says, you're no longer father, you're, 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 you're a multitude. He says, I'm taking responsibility for this in your life. When he comes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. I'm going to do a work in you, God is saying, a work that will be brought to completion in my timing and in my process, but you can bank on it because Jacob becomes a new man. Now, it's interesting, you go to the next chapter and you're like, oh my goodness, that's messed up. You can read it later. But then you come back and we'll study chapter uh, 35 the next week. Actually, 33 is not messed up. 34 is messed up. 35, um, God has another conversation to have with Jacob that we'll talk about next week. But here's the point. When God changes a name, God changes a name. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is I who no longer live, but it is what? Christ who lives in me. When you and I come to, to faith, when, when, when we say to God, God, I'm basing and in, in placing all of my trust upon Jesus and what Jesus has done, God changes your name from what you once were to now a beloved child of God whose past is still there. Yeah, your past is still there. But God says, I'm going to begin a transformation that I will carry to completion, he says in Philippians, until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that cool? So wherever you're at in your spiritual journey today, if you're a follower of Jesus, hear me, God has changed your name. Now, by God's grace, learn to walk in keeping with the name God has given you, his child. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can become one today. You, you, you can say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned. I, I am unworthy of everything, even the things that, um, that you've done in my life that I, I don't fully see. I'm unworthy of who you are. But Lord, I, I trust that Jesus has died and rose again to pay for my sins. I, I trust God that I am not made holy or made perfect by my righteous acts. Rather, I'm made holy by the only one who is holy, Jesus. One of the things I love about the Christmas season is that there's so many great reminders that God is with us. My, my family and I went to a, a, a concert last night. It was a late night. 
but a great night. And um, it, it struck me, even as I was thinking about it after, afterwards, moments where we, we hit pause on the fast-paced and hectic lifestyle that can exemplify our lives for the holidays. They're needed and they're important. And in doing so, not just in a, in a way to get away from everything, but to do so in a way that brings true spiritual meaning into the season which we are embarking. What I mean by that is this. If, if, if your family, if your family's in this area, um, seek intentional ways together as a family and, and even you as an individual to celebrate Christ and his work in your life. The Christmas season reminds us of this, that his name shall be called, this is the promise given, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because God is with us, we know God is doing a work in us. Wherever you are at today, God is here. Because God cares. He's not distant, he's not dormant, he's here, and he cares. And he says, will you walk with me in this season for my honor, for my glory, will you be a person who will allow my work to strive in your life? Because the biggest person that hinders the work of God in my life is me. Always. The biggest person that hinders the work that God wants to do in my life is me. Because I have plans and I have dreams, but maybe they're not of the Lord. The best thing, my friends, that we can do is to walk into the freedom that God has given us as his children and to say, God, thank you for making me your child. God, help me to live out of your teaching so that I might reflect who you are in the fullest way possible. I want to invite our, our, um, our helpers and our worship team who are going to help us walk through communion uh, up right now but even as we think about communion, years, years ago, the Messiah, Jesus, is seated around the Passover table. He's remembering the Exodus when God brought his people out of Egypt, bondage and slavery. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which proclaims my death until I return. As, as he gathers with those disciples, they are people who are learning what it means to follow their master. But as they gather, they're reminded of what Christ has done for them. They're, they're getting a foretaste of it, in a sense. And, and they're also being reminded, as they will in a few chapters later, Matthew 28, that, that Jesus will be with them forever. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. And so as they walk in the journey that God has for them, they walk first in their identity as God's redeemed child, and then they seek to walk it faithfully by the Holy Spirit in them. And what I want to do as we get ready uh, to take communion this morning is I want to just give you a moment to pray. Maybe there's a response that you need to make to God and you just need some quiet to wrestle with God for just a moment. And if there's anything that we can do with where you are at in your spiritual journey and just help you walk through some of those things, we would love to be able to do that. But let's take a moment of silence and then Pastor Tom and our team will lead us through communion. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. 
If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.